Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to episode 55, our third episode on the War of 1812. Now last time, Caleb, we saw the Americans get their tails handled to them at the Battle of Queenston Heights. It was a huge, great big Mohawk British victory, but it wasn't really decisive for determining the course of the war. It just delayed it and made it a bigger, bloodier conflict. Shortly after this battle, on July 10th, 1813, our old friend Commander Granger got together Red Jacket and some other Seneca chiefs and warriors on his farm, and they prepared for another British counterattack. Now, the British were coming to attack Black Rock. This is actually a community just south of uh, modern-day Buffalo. There was another guy who we haven't really introduced before, and uh, he's on some famous documents, but a uh, farmer's brother. Uh, that's actually his name. Uh, I don't know if his farmer actually was a brother or not, or if that was just uh, his Seneca name, but he brought about three dozen Seneca men, and they helped repel the British invasion. After this, the Seneca people start to realize, you know what, the British are coming across the river, they could be attacking our settlements next. So this is when the six nations that are on the United States side of the border, they officially declare war on the British. Because Farmer's Brothers said, you know what, our country was just invaded, and now we have a common interest with the people of the United States. Now, Andrew, some people might wonder why people like the Seneca would side with the Americans after just the past 20 years they had been uh, victims to some kind of overbearing, oppressive treaties, which forced them out a lot of their western New York land. And the reason is they were afraid that if they didn't side with the Americans, it may give an excuse later to push them even further. Think about it this way. Uh, where they're currently living at the time is the greater Niagara Falls, Buffalo area. When you have these British people invading in to their land, because that's one of the main choke points is the Buffalo-Niagara Falls region to get into what is western New York from Canada. So what happens if these British soldiers come in to this Seneca reservation and then the American troops come through and attack that reservation? What's going to happen to the Seneca? We've seen many times throughout our episodes where it doesn't matter whose side you're on. If you're an Indian village, you're going to get burned. And it'd be pretty easy for people to say, hey, the Six Nations lit these people in here, so we need to kick them out of here now, too. So Red Jacket, I think, was pretty wise politically to side with the Americans because then they have the Americans on their side to back them up and they can hold the border to Canada. Now let's jump back over and see what's going on in the, uh, what, what we would call at this time the West, but modern day upper Midwest of the United States. And we've got our old friend, General William Henry Harrison, getting ready to do some big things to take care of Tecumseh and the British in the Northwest. Yeah, there's, there's going to be a few exciting battles happening this year, Andrew, in the year 1813. And in uh, summer to early fall, General William Henry Harrison, he's, he's kind of down in the Ohio area, and he's waiting to hear about a victory, a victory that he's really hoping to hear good things from, and that is a battle on the sea. And no, we're not talking about the ocean. We're talking about the Great Lakes. This is probably, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is going to be the largest sea battle in the history of the Great Lakes, I believe. It sounds about right. You see, America had been spending a lot of money and bringing uh, a lot of shipwrights over, really uh, starting to 
get a little more respected with the craftsmanship of their war corvettes and things like that. And it's really interesting because all this stuff needs to be built on Lake Erie because you can't transport them up the St. Lawrence River, one, because the British guard that, but secondly, you've got Niagara Falls in the way, and at the time there was no canal, so you could not sail ships from Lake Ontario to Lake Erie. There was just no way through. So for the longest time, the British uh, have had a stronghold on the Great Lakes because they've been such masters of uh, master shipwrights. But uh, like I said, America has been really pumping out a lot of ships, and these American ships are being commanded by a Commodore Perry. He is out looking for this British fleet. And so William Henry Harrison, the general, is waiting to hear good news that these fleets have engaged each other. He didn't dare trying to move his forces into Canada yet, Andrew. And that's because until you can support them with ships to transport them across rivers and also transport food supplies after them, it was just a logistical nightmare. Yeah, you don't want to be cut off from your only way of escape and resupply. Exactly. He's waiting in the Ohio Territory for some good news, but he's not sitting around doing nothing. He contacts the governor of Kentucky, a man named Isaac Shelby, and he asks him to raise an army ASAP and wait to hear from me. <laughs> raise an army and wait to hear from me. So on uh, the 10th of September, 1813, the British and American fleets meet on Lake Erie, just north of Sandusky Bay in Ohio. The Americans shock the world by defeating the British Navy. It wasn't a toss-up, Andrew. It was a sound defeat. And the Americans captured six of their ships, destroying many more, and a few others escaped. Governor Shelby was ready when Harrison called. Within the short amount of time he was given, he'd raised an army of over 3,500 men. Wow. So uh, Shelby, he uh, walks into his governor's mansion. He uh, takes off his governor's hat and sets it on the hook. And he picks up a major general's cap. And he is going to lead this army he's raised himself to meet Harrison. Now, oftentimes you hear about these guys, Caleb, and uh, playing... Uh pretend general don't do so well. How does he actually fare? Well, he's going to fare pretty well. And you got to remember too, Andrew, this, during the Revolutionary War, a lot of the Americans were completely incompetent because they'd never done any of this before. But a lot of the people that fought in this war as officers were young were young lieutenants in the Revolutionary War. Now they're, they're grizzled soldiers. So on September 23rd, 1813, Commodore Perry he brings his ships down, is captured, and the ones he was already sailing, and he begins transporting Harrison's army. And he's transporting them from the Ohio country across the lake into the little foot of modern-day Ontario. Meanwhile, Tecumseh... Oh, we talked a lot about him. ...and the Canadian general took one look at this horde of American troops that are crossing the, the water, and they look at each other, and they both shake their heads and say, Nope. They begin retreating east down the Thames River, and Harrison's army is following close behind. And I'd like to be clear that the Thames is a name for a river in southern Ontario, not to be confused with the Thames River in England. That would be impressive, though. If uh... Which, ironically, there's also a London, Ontario. So just uh, ignore these dual names that they have here. So this chase of Canadians and Tecumseh's men retreating and the Americans following went on for days. And every day, 
the American troops were gaining ground. Eventually, it became apparent to the Canadians that they would have to fight. Now, Andrew, as far as soldiers go, we're looking at somewhere between four and 5,000 for the Americans and right around 1,000 for the Canadian Native American Alliance. I can picture a lot of people, especially people with the skills that Tecumseh and his men have, would probably be tempted to just kind of fade into the woods and disappear. But that's not what Tecumseh does. He and his men are committed to standing and fighting alongside their allies. The Canadians made ready on two sides of a swamp between a ravine and the Thames River. Tecumseh's men covered the flanks and provided a reservoir behind the Canadian regulars. And when the Americans saw the Canadians, they weren't in your traditional rank, like you, uh, you picture, you know, everybody shoulder to shoulder lining up, Andrew. Uh, they were what was called skirmishing formation. And that's where you have about, you know, five to six feet between each person. And that way you can shuffle around, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to move quickly. But Harrison, he sees a way to exploit this pretty quickly. And he's going to uh, give the order that his cavalry, instead of staying back in reserve, he's going to tell them to charge full speed right through the line. But they're not going to charge the line to fight. They're going to charge the line and go directly through the Canadian skirmish line. Then after they get a few hundred yards past them, they're going to turn around and they're going to pin them in a vice and completely annihilate them. And... That's what they do. The plan worked perfect, and the Canadian army was hard-pressed. Some ran, some surrendered, and some fell back to Tecumseh. After rounding up the Canadians that had surrendered, the Americans found themselves hitting a brick wall of sniper fire from Tecumseh and his men. They were dug in so deep in the thick swamp and on the, the ridges that they, uh, they were really creating a problem for them. And Harrison was worried about sending his infantry marching through these swamps where they're all dug in so well. And that's where he comes up with another uh, interesting idea. And this is one of those ideas, Andrew, that uh, looking back in history, I think we can all say that it was a brilliant idea. But I would not have wanted to be one of the people involved in this brilliant idea. Do tell. Well, the plan was basically this, Andrew. Get a few men to charge and take all the bullets. <laughs> Meanwhile, while uh, Tecumseh's men are reloading, the rest of the army splits up behind. Uh, so uh, he would send in the Forlorn Hope. Have you ever heard of the Forlorn Hope? You no. ever read about them? But this sounds a lot like, to throw another pop culture reference uh, from Magneto from the terrible X-Men movie X3, in chess, the pawns go first. Yes, um... The Forlorn Hope, Andrew, uh, it dates back a long time. I, I tried to find the first time the term was ever used, but I think it's even back to like the Middle Ages. What you would do is when you'd have something that was so risky that you couldn't ask your soldiers to do it with a good conscience, you would give them a reward. And this was called the Forlorn Hope. And traditionally what you would do is if a private agreed to do it and lived, he would be bumped up to a sergeant. Mm. And the sergeant that agreed to, to lead it, if he lived, 
he would be given a battlefield commission and made into an officer. And this was a big deal back then, you know, especially you're thinking back in the 15, 16, 1700s. It's a bump bump in pay and recognition and could further your political or uh, business career in the future. Because it was a class system back then. So if you were commissioned, you were already elevating your entire family into another bracket. So he finds some volunteers? (laughs) Yes. He finds some volunteers to be these uh, bullet magnets. And the plan worked again. The Americans pushed through the swamps. The snipers fired into it. And uh, Van Harrison sent a full-on charge with the entire army. They crushed Tecumseh's men in the middle of the swamp. But they continued to be picked off by sniper fire from the ridges. That is, until word got out about Tecumseh. Tecumseh never ran, and he took the charge with the men dead in the middle. And he was killed in Harrison's charge. And uh, you can read about Tecumseh's death, Andrew. I don't know if you had a chance to look into it, but it's shrouded in mystery because... Every single person in the army wanted to claim that they were the the one that killed him. And you can read the the descriptions, you know, people saying that it was a hand-to-hand combat and, you know, it was... It's kind of like the famous Bills uh, playoff comeback game, how everybody says that they were at that game. Yes. The joke Steve Tasker says that 100,000 people have told him that they were there. Same same deal. You're doing it again, Andrew. He's referring to a football game that happened uh, 25, 30 years ago. <laughs> So if, if you're from Western New York and you have parents, ask them about it. Everybody else, uh, you probably won't get it. But Tecumseh's killed and word starts to leak back to the rest of the his uh, Native American army. They lose hope at that point. The Canadians have already surrendered. Yeah, remember, Tecumseh is this guy that has united dozens of Western tribes into this confederation to try and hold off this American advance. And now that their ringleader's dead... I can see how that could be a demoralizing blow. So all these Indian nations start to fade into the forest. And after the battle, uh, there was a close-by Indian town, and the Americans decided to burn it to the ground to teach these Indians uh, a lesson. The town was called Moravian Town. If that sounds familiar, probably our least favorite episode we've ever done, the... uh, Blood of the Innocent episode, we talked about the Moravians in Ohio. These are other Moravian Christian converts. And if you remember correctly, Moravians were known for one Christian attribute, and that was they were strictly pacifists. So they burned this Moravian town to the ground, despite the fact that the town was settled by the Christian Lenape, Delaware, who had absolutely nothing to do with this battle that just so happened to be taking place close by. When the smoke clears from the battlefield, Andrew, the bodies are counted, and some people were amazed at how few dead and wounded there were. Out of 5,000 men that participated in the battle, the Americans only lost seven. Seven? Yes. And, you know, a lot of times you'll see seven wounded and, or I'm sorry, seven killed and 300 wounded. But no, it was seven killed and 22 wounded. And that's even with the forlorn hope maneuver. And the British, 12 killed, 20 wounded. But I'm guessing the Native Americans probably suffered a higher total. Yep. Uh, men. Like a lot of these battles, uh, we don't have numbers of that. 
one reason was a lot of times if somebody was shot and killed, they would pick them up and carry their body out of there so they couldn't count bodies. The big blow to the Canadians was not in the killed and wounded, but the captured. Over 600 Canadian soldiers captured. So this is a pretty big defeat for both the Native People's Confederacy and the British Canadian forces. Yeah, and even though we don't know the amount of um, Tecumseh's men that were killed, we do know that several of the prominent chiefs were killed because their bodies were found, and obviously Tecumseh's body, who was the greatest of them all. So the Canadian army was defeated and the lakes were now held firmly by U.S. warships. And with this defeat, the British influence is going to be pushed clean out of Western Canada. And Harrison is going to be able to dictate peace negotiations with all these native tribes. And he's going to be able to get very good deals because they don't have much choice at this point. And I'm sure he's going to them one-on-one and they're lining up to get the best deal they can from everybody else. Yeah, because you no longer have a central figure like Tecumseh who is telling everybody, let's all stay together, nobody make any deals. And that was a huge thing about the Confederacy. No one nation could make an agreement with a colonial power without everybody else being on board with it because they wanted to make sure that they were all united in their their discussion efforts. Mm -hmm. But the British aren't done. Their influence in the western part of the continent may have been severely diminished, but they decide to go for more juicy fruit closer to home. And the British decide a few months later in on December 19th, 1813, you know what? Let's go for Niagara. Fort Niagara. Andrew, that's madness. Fort Niagara is one of the best defended strongholds in that whole part of the country. And we've talked about Fort Niagara in many different episodes, in many different battles and sieges. Um, But the British Canadian troops come over in the middle of the night. They catch the United States forces totally by surprise. And they capture Fort Niagara without firing a single shot. (laughs) That'll take the wind out of your sails. (laughs) I think the sentries must have uh, been a little lacking on duty. But the British don't stop there. The same night, they continue south to Lewiston, which is, uh, if you were to look at it on a map, it's between Fort Niagara and the modern city of Buffalo. Right about daybreak, at sunrise, the citizens of Lewiston wake up and they just are in a total state of confusion. Just horrible stuff is happening all around them. The British are unleashing this massive assault on what is pretty much just a, a civilian town. The British Canadians, along with several different native allies, come pouring in, including some Mohawks, and they run right down the river road into Lewiston with torches and guns and tomahawks, and they really want to get some revenge for everything that's happened from the the Battle of the Thames. And they turn Lewiston into an ash heap. The town pretty much wasn't defended at all, and you know the c- civilians are just waking up groggy. Uh, so they're on their own. There's no army. Remember, the army's stationed up at Fort Niagara, and they're all captured. And so the residents just start running for their lives through the mud and snow. And you hear horrible stories of people just being mowed down and axed and shot, and some parents trying to save their children. You know, there's one story about this seven-year-old kid that was shot and scalped right in front of his mother's eyes. Like, really, really bad stuff. But... It almost seems like the the climax, the uh, the you catastrophe of the movie, where all hope seems lost, but then all of a sudden, 
you know, something comes in and just, whether it's Han Solo diving in to, you know, clear Luke out of the Death Star or the T-Rex in Jurassic Park coming down to eat the raptors, just something comes rushing in to save the day. Aragorn arrives. Yeah, Aragorn arrives. <laughs> you, you see it in all these different movies, these, uh, these climactic, comes out of nowhere to save you things. And so a group of Tuscarora come charging in. They lived in a nearby village, and they had gotten word that the, the British were attacking, and they come rushing in to stop the British and the Mohawks right in their tracks. The Tuscarora set themselves up in such a way uh, to convince the invading forces that they're a much bigger army arriving, and uh, the, the British feel like, oh, maybe it's a trap, and they stop advancing. And get this, the Tuscarora were outnumbered 30 to 1, but they were able to buy enough time to get the remaining residents to escape, and they literally grabbed women and children and escorted them away. They saved dozens of American citizens. Meanwhile, you know, after they were able to hold them off and escape and divert, they burned Lewiston the ground. Uh, one building was spared. And we, we don't even have an exact number of civilians that were killed because many of the bodies were thrown into the buildings while they were on fire. But uh, estimates are from anywhere from a dozen to 40. Fort Niagara would remain in British control until the end of the war, which is a huge stronghold to have over on the Niagara side of the river. But these Tuscarora, um, there's statues of them in Lewiston to this day, and they have a, an annual holiday commemorating how the, the Tuscarora saved the, the civilians of Lewiston back in the day, and they, they called them the Tuscarora heroes. But we don't have time to, to stop because the British aren't stopping. So a few days later, right before Christmas, December 23rd, 1813, was the Battle of Black Rock, a few miles to the south. And this is where the American commander Granger started working with the Seneca and Tuscarora that were allied with the Americans to defend Buffalo. Because remember, Red Jacket's feeling like, you know, the Buffalo Creek Reservation's at risk. We don't know if the British will come and burn that too. We need to defend our homeland too. They're able to stall the British for about a week. But then on December 30th, another force of British Iroquois crossed the Niagara to reinforce, and they attacked Buffalo. And I never knew this, Caleb. They burned Buffalo to the ground, too. And they left four buildings. Also, the British were able to destroy the Navy Yard and destroy three armed uh, schooners that were there. Remember, uh, Buffalo's on Lake Erie, and so they're crippling this naval dockyard there, which uh, is another blow. Just going to mention a few things in passing, just off to the side. Um, Caleb talked about the, the war is, you know, massively happening all across the continent. And of course, we're just focusing on the area that the Iroquois were involved. But, you know, other things happened too, like the Americans went up to York, which is modern day Toronto, and burned that. And then the Canadians and British retaliated and came up the Chesapeake and burned Washington, D.C. to the ground. Uh, you know, no Iroquois were involved in any of these events, but we just want to let you know that in the context, this stuff is happening around the same time, too. Not to be outdone, the following summer, the Americans tried to do another huge invasion into Canada. This would be the largest American army yet assembled. On July 3rd, 1814, uh, the Americans were joined by over 500 Haudenosaunee. Uh, from the Seneca, Onondaga, Tuscarora, and Oneida nations under the command of Red Jacket. No Mohawks? <laughs> Remember, the Mohawks are mainly living in Canada or all the way up on the northern border of northern New York. Mm -hmm. So no, the Mohawks are not coming along on the American side. 
the U.S. forces quickly took possession of Fort Erie and then turned north up to the direction of the Chippewa and Fort George, which was on the other side opposite of uh, Fort Niagara on the river. Two days later, on July 5th, the uh, armies met again, and this would be known as the Battle of Chippewa. And it's here that we see that the members of the Six Nations find themselves directly facing Brother Iroquois in a major battle. But thankfully, Caleb, this is the last time in history that we're going to see a major battle where Iroquois attack each other. If you remember John Norton, who was a adopted Mohawk British commander, he led 200 Iroquois snipers, and they were the first to attack the Americans. And uh, a whole lot of shifting and moving goes on through the woods and around. And uh, a lot of people were in the thick of it. Even a guy named Cornelius Dockstater. He was an Oneida chief. And I don't know if you remember that last name, Caleb, but he's actually the youngest son of Hanyeri and two kettles together. That goes way back to the Revolutionary War. Yeah, they were the awesome power couple in the Oriskany episode, you know, where she was fighting alongside her husband in hand-to-hand combat. Anyway, this is their kid. And similarly, he's in the middle of this battle fighting alongside with his sons. Cornelius gets chased by probably five or six mounted Wyandants. Uh, Those are modern-day Hurons. So being chased on horseback by by these guys seems a bit daunting. Uh, Dockstader was shot just as he was jumping over a fence. And after Cornelius was shot, a Chippewa man came running up and tomahawked him right in the the skull and then began scalping him. And then other Chippewa come over uh, to join him and they've captured uh, Cornelius's two boys, Daniel and George. They were, uh, I think, 17 and 15 years old. But then some Oneida had their back and they shot the Chippewa guy, tomahawked and scalped him, and then freed the boys. Now, you can imagine... This would be really disconcerting, especially for someone like Red Jacket, because as the battle ends, he walks through and he just sees slain Iroquois warriors all over the place from both sides. And he was like, what are we doing? You know, he's like, we need to we need to stop this. I think we need to put a pause and get a ceasefire going. Let's make sure that no more Iroquois are attacking each other, Canadian or American side of the border, wherever you are. We're one people. We need to stop this. When they did the final body count, it looks like that the Canadian Grand River Iroquois lost 87 and the American Iroquois lost 25. And the fact is most of these deaths were Iroquois on Iroquois killing each other. But thankfully, it finally changed their view of the war. And for the rest of the conflict, most members of the Six Nations are going to stay neutral. And we've got one other little battle here to talk about uh, a few weeks later, the Battle of Lundy's Lane. And there isn't much Iroquois involvement in this battle at all, but there is one notable casualty, a guy named Lewis Cook. Do you remember this guy, Caleb? Yeah, we uh, talked about him a few episodes back. Oh, I, I can't remember everything about him, but I remember, was he a colonel or something? Yep. Like a, an American commissioned black African-American. Yeah. Cook was a famous guy that really you know sided with the Americans during the revolution. But after the war, the American Revolutionary War, in 1789, Cook had settled at Aquasasne, 
which was the, the Mohawk settlement up in northern New York, southern Canada. Uh, it's a community that straddles both sides of the border. And he was a pretty influential chief there. And at first, when this War of 1812 kicked up, he said that, you know, these indigenous nations, we need to stay neutral in this war. But we talked about in a previous episode, Aquasasne was constantly being invaded from Americans on both sides, and he had to flee. And eventually he decided to come to Fort Niagara to offer his services. The problem is when he showed up, nobody knew who the guy was, and they thought he was a spy, and uh, they locked him up and detained him for eight days. And he kept trying to tell them that he was a friend of the Americans and nobody believed him. Eventually he got an audience with the, the commander and he got some people to start saying, you know what, actually, I think this guy is pretty important. I think he might actually be who he says he is. So when he gets a meeting with the commander, he plops down a large black pocketbook that he has with him. And he says to the, the people, quote, gentlemen, please examine them. And inside, there's some very interesting things. First was his war commission as a lieutenant colonel from General George Washington, as well as letters from General Schuyler, General Gates, Governor Clinton, General Knox, Governor Tompkins, General Moores, and a certificate as a regular member of General Washington's Military Masonic Lodge. Do you think that's enough paperwork, Caleb? Some pretty good credentials there. <laughs> now, Andrew, uh, I'm not positive about this, but this is the earliest that I've ever seen for an African-American man uh, given a military commission. He was he was the first and highest of both Native American and African-American heritage. To, until the Civil War, he was the highest uh, commissioned officer. Yeah, it's incredibly, a lieutenant colonel is nothing to sneeze at. Anyway, uh, another colonel uh, named Williams at Plattsburgh, after this whole ordeal was over, he wrote and said, quote, I'm astonished that Colonel Lewis Cook could be suspected of his fidelity towards the American people. And that he's now suffering on account of it? He's been driven from his home. And I believe, as old as he is, he's ready to sacrifice his life to sustain the honor of the American flag. Unquote. It's hard to get an estimate, but Cook was probably in his 70s at this time. Which is, again, why nobody remembered him from a generation ago. And the fact that he was half black and half native automatically he's got some prejudices against him people couldn't there's no way that this black guy could possibly be a lieutenant colonel no way he says who he says he is anyway cook pledges his fealty and he wants to actually be involved in a battle and so at this battle of lundy's lane he's involved in a skirmish and he's leading a cavalry charge with some other tuscarora and he falls off his horse and remember did i mention the guys in his 70s falling off a horse is uh Probably not the best thing to do when you're a septuagenarian. The injuries actually ended up proving fatal. He was taken back to the American camp on the down near Buffalo. And a few months later, in October 1814, Cook died. But by this time, he had proven himself such an American patriot, a great ally, that he was given a military salute at his funeral. Right before he died, I'm just going to read one line of what he said. He's talking to his friend here. Quote, My colonel, you see I'm about to leave the world, leave all my dear friends, to die in the midst of the American camp, as I've always wished. Pray remember me to General Brown and the other officers here. 
I think much of my family at St. Regis and the American part of the tribe, unquote. St. Regis being Aquasosne, his, his hometown. I think that, you know, with him dying, that's really the, the change of another generation. And you just see how, how much Cook cared about American liberty and also cared about his own people. It's, it's a very weird dichotomy to see someone that literally, even at 70, sacrifices his life for, uh, for his friends. It's a, it's a powerful thing. After this, things start to wrap up. There's really not many other engagements up north. Back in Europe, a peace deal gets hammered out. Pretty much nothing happens. Things just go back to the status quo. There's some few trade things that go on, but pretty much the whole war is fought for nothing other than Americans wanting some more say in uh, trade negotiations and British seizures. Uh, there's another major battle that happens down in New Orleans after the war is officially over, but news doesn't get back for a few more weeks, and that would be the Battle of New Orleans. And it means nothing to American history other than, you know, some guy named Andrew Jackson is going to get catapulted and eventually become president of it, and then he's going to remove almost all Native Americans from the East. But hey, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But where does this leave the Six Nations, Caleb, after this war? Well, Andrew, they're divided, but... Uh... From the start of this podcast, we've seen divisions. There's one thing that throughout these several hundred years of history we've seen whenever there's a division in the Six Nations, and that's that they eventually come back together. It's amazing that they find a way to get back together. And so that's what they do. In 1815, with the war being over, leaders from both the Canadian and American sides of the conflict know that forgiveness is needed. And they know that these wars between the European and American powers have been wreaking havoc on their very existence for hundreds of years now. And so on August 31st and September 1st, over two days, they do a ceremony of reconciliation. And in Niagara, they restore the peace among the native nations that fought on opposing sides. And as we said, this will be the last time that any of the six nations take up the hatchet against each other. It's not to say that in the next 200 years of their history, things aren't going to be uh, all hunky-dory for them, but at least we're going to see that they're going to be united from here on out. And uh, it's really cool that we get to see again this coming Monday, the, the Treaty of Canadegua is going to have their chain-brightening ceremony between the United States and the Six Nations. And there's going to be people from all Six Nations, from wherever they live, on the American side of the border or the Canadian side of the border, or as they call it, they say there is no border. They just call it that imaginary line because they view them all as one people living on Turtle Island. So if you happen to be in the western New York area next Monday, which what's that date, Andrew? It's the 11th, and it, every year it coincides with Veterans Day. So if you work in a cushy government job, you already got the day off. So you might as well come over. Just dress warm. Yeah, It's held right at the, the front of the Ontario County Courthouse, and Andrew and I plan to be there. So if anybody's going to be there, uh, feel free to shoot us a message on Facebook, and we'd love to see you. Well, thank you, everyone, and we do appreciate your loyal listening following. Uh, this episode, Andrew and I wanted to dedicate to a friend of the show who's been there since the beginning. Uh, her name was Tamer, and she was a fan of the show from the very beginning and constantly was sending us messages and gifts and telling us how much she loved the show and loved hearing about the history of her people. And uh, sadly, a few months ago, Tamer uh, lost her battle with cancer. So if you happen to know her, 
she's from Western New York. Um, you just we just want to let you know that our our thoughts and prayers are with you in this time of mourning, and we want to thank everyone who's been with Andrew and I in the show for what is it four years now, Andrew? Four years we've been working on this show. You've all been great. This was a really humbling, rewarding experience for both Andrew and I, and we feel so privileged that we were able to give something back to the history side, not being doctorates of history or anything like that, just being two guys that love history and uh, love looking at history, not just as pages and books, but as stories of people. So if there's anything we hope you got out of this podcast, it's, it's that people are people. It doesn't matter how bad they are. If you get to know them enough, there's probably going to be some redeeming qualities about them that you can admire. So if there's anybody out there that's ever uh, held grudges on uh, on anybody, um, we just we want to encourage you to try and make peace with it. Uh, life is too short to go through it feeling angry and uh, bitter about things. And it can start with you. 